Welcome to episode 680 with my guest Kaylee Powers. Uh, this is uh, the Mental Illness Happy Hour, which is a, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction, and everyday compulsive negative thinking. And this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Just came uh, back from my favorite Thursday night support group meeting, and oh my God, the guy that spoke there was so fucking good and i'm hoping hoping to get him to come on the podcast he uh gave me his number so i think we're gonna make that happen but oh can't wait can't wait for you guys to hear him we are at god i forgot what it is 600 and no 890 uh patreon donors and we are We've kind of plateaued, and we really, really need um, some more support. And I'm sure those of you who have already stepped up and, and donated are like, oh, my God, I've already donated. Do I have to keep hearing this fucking message? But I'm a big proponent, and if you need help, ask for it. And so we need help. Um, ads are great, but they do not pay the bills. We depend on um, sponsors and uh or donors and we have um posted some new stuff on patreon uh some crazy videos some videos of me uh, doing a little bit of woodworking in the shop and um i know there was something oh i know what it was well I'm, i'll actually i'll address it somebody uh asked a question in a survey and i'll just address it when uh, when we get to that but crazy I don't know if you guys can hear her in the back, but sometimes, you know how dogs have the zoomies where like they get super excited and they and they run around. She doesn't really do that, but she does it on the bed on her back. She gets she gets really excited, and I love it. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a trans woman uh, who calls herself Liz, and about her depression she writes it feels like knowing and believing that the world is full of beautiful and vibrant colors but still seeing it in black and white about having fibromyalgia uh, and another thing that i am sure i'm gonna butcher ankylosing <laughs> spondylitis and i'm not laughing at your at your uh, illness at just how hang up crazy like to pride myself on being able to uh, pronounce big words, and I'm at a loss. Anyways, she writes, uh, it feels like my body trying to tell me that I am not supposed to exist. That, um, wow, I'm sorry that you are dealing with that, and that uh, you listen to a podcast where the host doesn't even take the fucking time or have the decency to learn how to pronounce it before reading it on air this is from the ask paul anything survey and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself curious kazoo and uh she writes is that your music at the end of episode 674 uh with leah rudick i uh, really loved it as closing music perfect for some quiet reflection before emerging from the podcast back into the real world yes that is uh, that is my music and that's one that's uh um called Floating Pig, which is a Pink Floyd reference, her big, big influence on me. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Hackles Up, question mark. And 
about his depression. He writes, I'm a great cook limited to cooking microwave dinners about having OCD. If my right foot doesn't hit the concrete outside my door before the left one, terrible things will happen. Thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, that, that is one of the worst parts of depression is being a foodie and just not having the energy or the vitality to, uh, to sit down and cook. It's like your brain is, is a, just a field of fog. This is also from The Struggle in a Sentence, and I'm going to withhold this person's name. I don't know if they fully knew. Uh, There's some of the things that they share here because they're a public figure um, that I believe that if I were to say their name, they might be publicly identifiable, and there's some really personal stuff that that she shares, Uh, and she's a teenager, um, about... uh, her sex addiction. Uh, she says, sometimes I masturbate so many times a day, I start falling asleep during it. I just want to feel good about being a sex crime victim. My parents don't let me use the word victim, just survivor. I don't feel like I survived about experiencing racial or cultural bias. Even I don't believe it when I say I'd be just as successful if I weren't Japanese and making content appealing to Japanophiles snapshot from her life. My video has been live for four hours. I sneak a peek at my analytics on my phone under my desk, glancing through the comments. The upvote ratio is astronomical. The comments are all positive, not a single piece of hate. My stomach hurts like I've been kicked anyway. Anxiety telling me there's no way these people can all mean it. I haven't eaten in two days. Some part of me whispers, how many of the people watching you have an Asian kink, just like the man who raped you? A YouTuber I've watched and admired for three years leaves a glowing comment. I should be happy. I look at my unfinished homework and wish my ADHD would let me be good at things everyone else cares about. Would my YouTube idol like my content if she knew I like girls? And I have to take illegal benzos for my panic attacks. Would anyone, will anyone ever like the real me? Thank you for sharing that. You sound like you're in a a, a lot of pain. There's a, a, a documentary that I have not watched yet, um, but it's about the uh, suicidal ideation that and depression that so many um, influencers have and I would imagine that there's a lot of people who are like when the fuck do I want to watch those you know blah 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 because so many people I think are are, see somebody who's got a million followers on TikTok and think you know you just think oh they've got every problem solved they've got it made Um, but I don't know when 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 I was at my most successful financially and in terms of visibility uh, doing television. Do we all remember what a television was? Uh, I was at my most suicidal. This is uh, an email that I got from um, a guy named Rob, and he writes, um, the choreography of your distinctive encounter is unfolding with our team intricately piecing together a mosaic of excellence that promises to be uniquely yours. And then there's a transaction detail number and a product key number. Um, And 
the choreography of your distinctive encounter is unfolding. A lot of people thought that when I doubled majored in encounter and dance that I was wasting my time. Um, but I could tell you, I do not look at that double major as, as a waste of time. Um, I've had my ballets reviewed by some of the most influential periodicals in the encounter dance world. Uh, in fact, one reviewer said that he believes that my ballet was the most realistic portrayal of a waiter being asked for ketchup by a swan that he had ever seen. I want to say hi to the team over there because I do take pride in mosaic excellences. Have I, have I mined this? Is there any ore left at the bottom of this? I've got I've got about nine other things written down that I wanted to riff on on that. And honestly, I feel like the entire thing was a waste of time. But wow, what? How did that get generated? That had to have been a drunk AI that generated that, right? This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Zach and about his anxiety. He writes, I am chum in the water trying to get past the sharks. About his anorexia, nothing tastes as good as being hollowed out inside feels. I know it'll kill me, but it's too good to quit. About his love addiction, I will set myself on fire to keep people warm and then wonder why I'm burned out. About being a sex crime victim, she devoured me whole and no one even noticed. And about his self-harm, I'm only real when I'm bleeding. Oh, that is so heavy. Snapshot from his life. It's 5 a.m. I haven't eaten in three days. I can remember my babysitter telling me as she molested me that I was cute, that she liked how chubby I was. The scale today said I'm at my lowest weight in my life. I'm aware I need to eat in order to do what I need uh, need to do at work. I'm afraid to do it. I'm awake because I had a nightmare about one of the YouTubers I watch molesting kids. That happens a lot when I try to watch women who are YouTubers. I want to hurt myself, but I don't think I can spare the energy and still get through the day unless I eat, but I don't think I can eat without feeling guilty unless I hurt myself. Wow, that is a that is a vicious treadmill. Fuck. Sending you some love, Zach. You know, I talk often on the on the podcast, or I should say, I'll point out frequently how there are kind of similarities between um, surveys that just happen to have been chronologically taken together. Um, and I, I pulled a couple of the ones that I was going to read on this week's episode because they were so fucking dark. Um, and I'm going to save them for another uh, darkest surveys ever. Uh, episode. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Dorth Vader and about uh, her depression. She writes, 
Uh, major depressive disorder. My feet weigh more than my entire body. I am so heavy. I feel like I should be laying on the ground. About her ADD. Getting locked outside in minus 10 with no jacket and wearing flip-flops. About her OCD. There is something wrong with my face and my hair, but I don't know what. About her codependency. If I take care of you, I can ignore my meth addiction. Snapshot from her life. I was trying to use the bathroom and I suddenly could not stand. I was falling all over the room with no pants on. Next thing I see is five EMTs performing CPR on me. I overdosed again, but for some reason, I cannot fucking die. Any comments to make the podcast better? I really enjoy uh, your responses to the scam emails. I've been listening to the show since you were on That's Deep Bro with Christina P. Um... I just bought a t-shirt. Thank you. Uh, can you make stickers of the logo for the shop, uh, the Threadless shop? And uh, I would love a sticker for my computer. Done, my lady. Tis your wish. Yes, I, uh, I'm glad you asked for that. So I also checked the box for mugs, phone cases, notebooks, mouse pads, uh, t-shirts, and uh, sweatshirts. And hopefully soon I will also have wigs, tampons, and coffins. This, this is an interesting, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to save this one for, uh, for after the interview. I want to get to the interview with, uh, with Kaylee. We are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online, you'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. You guys know uh, I'm a big uh, believer in therapy and uh, I also see a psychiatrist and I happen to take meds and uh, Cerebral is a kind of an all-in-one place. Uh, It's entirely online. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving our listeners 15% off their first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code MENTAL. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast and use code MENTAL to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. And we will include a link to all of that in our show notes. And then finally, this is uh, from the love survey filled out by Danish Delight. And they write, I love cold butter melting on freshly baked bread. That's a good one. Although I don't know if I'm ever fired up about cold butter. I usually think, why the fuck didn't they let this get to room temperature? Don't they, don't they know the effort I'm having to go through? I love the smell of autumn. I love summer rain and the smell of the warm asphalt, just getting wet by the rain. I love when my dog is so excited to go to the park and sets off at such a speed that his ears flap way behind him and his eyes almost fall out of his little head. I love when the wind rustles in the big treetops in our garden. I like that one. 
I love new crispy sheets dried outside on the clothesline, and you can still smell a little bit of wind and outside when you go to bed. I like that phrase, a little bit of wind and outside. Uh, I love to sniff my baby's little scalp and neck. If I could get that in a bottle. Uh, I love when my youngest daughter wakes up at the same time every night and I can hear her tiny steps running through the hallway and she snuggles up to me, rubbing her tiny cold feet against my warm skin and she pats me on the cheek and says, nighty night, mommy. That feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. All my altars have different handwriting, different affects. I'm somebody in prison. My mom taught me about rape. And I'm nobody on the streets. Before she taught me about love. Nobody will ever love me enough. There's two lies. A kind pimp. Yes. The secret shameful life at home. Happiness isn't the goal. That you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. The goal is meaning. It's hard to go into the dark places. I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it. Recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors. What you resist gets louder. And run toward them. She said, you first. And I said, I might be gay. I was with a girl. And I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last session. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Kaylee Powers, who is uh, your social worker. Substance abuse counselor. Who's done social work. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Because one of the things uh, when we talked via email, as you had mentioned uh, early in your mental health profession, you worked on Skid Row as a a social worker. Yes. That's kind of uh, where you you learned a lot of the... uh, Yes. I was the only substance abuse crisis counselor at the center I was working at. So I was working with all social workers. Was who, this Dee Dee Hirsch or a different one? This was the Downtown Woman Center. Okay. Dee which, Dee you said is, which you said is a, a, a great facility. Very, very amazing organization. They do housing. They do meals. They do case management. Pretty much they're a place, they're a safe haven for the women on Skid Row. And we're talking about downtown Los Angeles for yes. the listeners. Yes, Next to LAMP. It's on Los Angeles Street. What's LAMP? LAMP is one of the biggest shelters. It was the one that was featured in that movie with Robert Downey Jr. It's a very famous shelter. So it's a center, and they can go there. They can have counseling groups. So I was doing counseling. I was doing groups. And they can have meals, and it's just a safe place for them to be for eight hours a day before they have to get their beds and go back to the shelter. I got you. Um, So talk about what, paint a picture, if you would, and especially if you can think of any vignettes that um, kind of represent the, the situation on Skid Row, and especially any things and anything that you can think of that goes beyond the stereotype that the person who has never been to Skid Row has in their mind. One of the things that I was surprised by is they do have substance abuse treatment centers down there. However, most of the homeless clients have never been to treatment, even though they have beds open, because they don't even know that that's available. They don't even know what that is. They have mental health issues 
and they use drugs, self-medicating to cope, and they're not even aware that they could go into a treatment center for 60, 90 days, detox, get some help. So what I was trying to do was build that bridge between the social workers and the treatment centers, trying to link the two organizations. So I was walking up and down in Skid Row, banging on doors, asking, do you have beds? What, what could I do to get one of my clients in here? And I was also training a lot of the social workers and for on pe- addiction. And for the people that don't know, when, when they mean a bed, what they mean is a an opening in a facility for people to get treatment. It's more than just a place to sleep yes. at night. It's yes. a place to get counseling, perhaps get on medication if needed, because often people are uh, dual diagnosed, which means there might be an underlying depression or trauma in addition to an addiction. Pretty go, much go everyone on Skid Row is dual diagnosed, but they've never been diagnosed with any of it. They can't even though they've been seen by many uh, psychiatrists or social workers, they just can't get out of that loop. They can't get out of that cycle. But what I did find is most of them have never learned about the addiction part of their dual diagnosis or had any treatment for it. Even the support groups are not really there the way we have access to them in other places. Do you feel like it's different now that there's more awareness that that's uh, there's treatment options for, for people. And we're talking about free treatment options, correct? Yes. Uh, through Usually through Medi-Cal or whatever insurance they have. I don't know if it would be different because the housing crisis has gotten worse since I started in the field. And that's an understatement. Yes. It's exploded yes. here in Los Angeles. Yes. So exploded. The, the reason that treatment for substance abuse is not focused on is because In social work, the model is treat the most urgent need first. So if they don't have shoes, you go to the closet and you get them shoes. They don't have a place to sleep, you try to find them a shelter. If they haven't eaten in three days, you get them a meal. Going to a treatment center for an addiction is almost a luxury they've never had access to. That's not considered an urgent need. Like, where am I going to sleep tonight? Or... You know, can you give me tokens for the bus? It's that level of survival. So I was trying to link the two. I don't know how far I got. (laughs) I was there 10 months. It was an internship. Give me some vignettes of your time on, on Skid Row. I remember this one day I was upstairs running a group and it was about to complete and I got a call from one of the girls downstairs. And these are all social workers. None of, they have maybe one class in addiction, which is very strange in itself. They said, there's somebody down here. Uh, can you come talk to her? Uh, she seems like she might be an alcoholic and she might be under the influence. So I go down there, Native American. I start asking her questions. She's all beat up from her shoulder down, bruised, had a blackout doesn't remember where she was, found herself at the center. And I asked her, I said, are you Native American? Because she was working with a Native American uh, organization that treats alcoholism. And she said, yes. And I said, well, honey, you can't drink. 
And she's like, I know, I'm allergic to it. And so I sat with her for an hour or so, and I tried to... Hold that hold that thought for a second. You sat with her for an hour or so. Um, why was it... Uh, why was it important to ask her if she was Native uh, American? Uh, because she was working with that organization. I That's gotcha. where her stuff was, possibly. I see, I see. Right. And they seem to have a violent allergic chemical reaction to alcohol that I haven't seen in other populations. And so I always like to ask sometimes what culture someone's from, because it also plays into their experiences, what they understand about addiction, what they don't understand. So I sat with her for about an hour. I called to get her stuff. We found her a place to sleep for the night. We gave her water. There's no, you know, medication or anything available at the center. But at least I understood what she was going through. I understood the blackout. I understood the reaction. So that's one story that I can recall, but it's been a long time. I've had about two thousand other vignettes since then that was in share, 2010 share some with me and kaylee is a uh, what's called a kdac which is certified addiction drug counselor yes yes okay through the state of california yes that's the license however because i was at dd hirsch for five years i was trained in mental health again i was the only substance abuse counselor in two residential houses so I was working with mental health clinicians, really amazing ones. They were teaching me about psych evaluation, symptoms, medication, stabilization. I was teaching them about detox, withdrawal, long-term recovery, support groups. So Dita Hurst was one of the pioneers of dual diagnosis. They're, and they're great. They're a great organization here in, in L.A., yeah. I learned so much there. So give me some vignettes. Well, let me think. There's so many. One time, I had a client that was a younger client. She was suffering from crack addiction. She was maybe two weeks clean. This was a residential house, so we had 10 clients, three or four staff. They would stay with us for 30 days. We would have them cook. They cooked their own meals. Was this also a detox facility? We did detox there, but we weren't set up like that. But it would happen. Um, So they would be there for 28 days. You do outings, groups. They get a psychiatric evaluation. They're seen by the psychiatrist. They get therapy. And then they get me, which does the drug counseling. So she started to bang her head against the wall violently because she had had an episode with her girlfriend on the phone. And now it's me and another girl, and it's late at night. And the last thing you ever want to do is call the police. We're trained to de-escalate, do everything you can to get them calm so they can make it through the night. However, she kept banging her head against the wall, and now she's going to harm herself. So there is such a thing called the PET team, psychiatric emergency team, but they don't come for about four hours. So by then, the person could have jumped off the roof. So we had to call the police. So the police come, 
And this cop starts giving me a lecture about how it's not safe for me and this other girl to be working in this house and we shouldn't have called him and you need to tell your boss. And the client starts to see me stand up to this client, you know, because I don't speak to the clients ever in any type of assertive tone, but he was giving me grief and I'm just trying to keep my clients safe. Right. And so the the client, she kind of comes out of her episode and is looking over at me. And he's like, you need to tell your boss that this isn't safe. And I said, don't you think we've communicated that? I said, do you have a boss? And we're going back and forth. I said, look, are you going to help my client or not? Like, what's the bottom line here? He eventually did end up helping her, calming her down. But, you know... The police are not really trained in mental health. They're not. They're not. It's it's changing a little bit in some places, but it's uh, woefully, woefully lagging. They're just thrown into it. Yeah, and and you know they're they have enough things to do um, that it seems like slapping that onto their training and expecting them to have the expertise of a pet team is perhaps unrealistic. I don't know. Very unrealistic. Um, One time I had a cop come in with a rifle. I said, ma'am, I have have clients here with mental health issues that I'm trying to stabilize. You come in here with a gun, you're going to trigger them, and that's going to take me all night to get everybody settled down. Well, I'm here for the safety of me and everyone involved. What she was called about was a girl had taken a plastic coat hanger and was just trying to cut herself on her wrists. It, it wasn't anything that needed a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> so they, a, a pistol, <laughs> Kaylee. A large pistol, like from the Old West. So these are the kind of situations that you're faced that's, with. That's so darkly comedic. That's so fucked up. Yeah, one time in Inglewood, we called the police and... Like I said, it's always the last resort. But in five years, there's a couple incidents where you had to. Six cops showed up in my Inglewood residential. And I don't know what was going on that night, but they looked like models. They were like these gorgeous policemen. And I said, did we need six of you? I'm Because they are able to put somebody on a hold. It's their main thing. They can put somebody on a 5150 if needed. Mm-hmm. You know, we wish the pet team could respond instead mm-hmm. of the police having to do it, but we couldn't do it. Right. So we needed the police to do that for us. Did their pants come off with Velcro? Because <laughs> they might not have been real police. It was bizarre. I didn't know what was going on that night. I was just looking at them like, why do you guys look like you're about to do a dance routine or something? You know, this is very strange, but you know, you're just dealing with all kinds of characters on all kinds of levels. Everyone comes from different backgrounds. You just never know what you're walking into on a daily. And you're also dealing with people coming in the police who themselves have PTSD, most of them or a lot of them. Right. Right. And you have to be very clear to the clients. They are here to 5150 you. And most of them know what that is, because obviously with a lot of my African-American clients, just the sight of the police is going to send them into an episode. 
So you're also, you need to have them do the hold possibly, but then you also need to keep the other ones from feeling unsafe. And so what do you do? How do you, how do you de-escalate? Well, when you have a rapport with a client and that takes a skill to build, when you can make them feel safe, they will trust you. They will believe that you're not going to throw them in the back of a cop car. You know, I might be the only white girl they've ever met that they trusted. And I have to work for that. But once once you get that trust, they're loyal. So they'll believe you. If you tell them, I'm not going to harm you, this is what's going to happen. They believe you. And how do you build that trust? You give them a lot of space. Uh, You... I remember one lady, she did not trust me, and she's, I'm leaving. I said, okay. So we got her stuff, and put it by the door. She looked at me. Okay, I'll stay for another hour. Okay. Took her stuff, put it back in the closet. Two hours later, comes up again, looks me straight in the eye. I'm leaving. Okay. Got the stuff again. We did this about five, six times. <laughs> by the sixth time, you're not going to fight with me? You're not going to try to talk me out of it? I said, ma'am, I'm here to be of service. This is for your own mental health. If you don't want to be here, you know, that is your right. You're not being, you're here voluntarily. And that was it. Then she trusted me. Do you remember what the rest of her stay was like? We did some good counseling. Are you, are you free to talk about that? I know you need to uh, respect the anonymity. Um is there anything you can share that's general, general enough? I think she started to open up to me about her domestic violence history. She started to tell me what she had been through. The saddest part of this whole process is you work so hard to help them get 28 days clean, stabilized on their medication, and then guess what happens? When they're ready to discharge, a lot of them don't have anywhere to go. So what do you think happens when they get back on the street? They don't, they're not able to stay clean. Another thing I was finding is if I were to take them to a sober living, they'd be using at the sober living. So many sober livings are a fucking scam. Some great ones, but... Oh, my God. You have to know through support groups, word of mouth. And uh, one of, I think, the best, it's not a sober living, but it's a uh, a rehab center, is a place called Cry Help here in Los Angeles. Yes. And it's spelled C-R-I-H-E-L-P. And it's a nonprofit. Um, and we'll talk in a little bit about the for-profit uh, pitfalls of uh, you mean patient brokering? <laughs> Never heard of it. Yeah. Don't get me started. But um, Cry Help is the, really the only one that pops to mind where I know for a fact that they truly have the patient's best interest. And for a lot of people that go there, they're like, they're dicks. Well, they need to be dicks. Cool. Yeah. Old school. They don't take shit, and they no matter how rich you are, they they will kick you out if you break the rules. And that's what an untreated addict or alcoholic needs. Yes, they need. Yeah, they don't play consequences. They don't play. Yeah, and yeah. so talk. I interviewed there. 
So talk about the for-profit ones and the pitfalls there, especially as a as a KDAC. I've had a little bit of a dance in private, but I didn't know what patient brokering was doing at the time. And, and talk about what patient brokering is. So patient brokering is where, since Obamacare, it's been a goldmine, the treatment industry, because now all of a sudden you can bill your insurance for substance use treatment which is fabulous. However, it started to be a situation where you had these 22-year-old kids, in my opinion, young, opiate addicts. By the time they're 23, they've gone to 15 treatment centers. And not cheap treatment centers. Because they're getting a kickback. So what they would do is they would say, okay, go into treatment, go to detox, After about 28 days, I'm going to need you to use again. I'm going to pay you to go to another center. Sometimes they would put drugs in the bathroom and they would fall out of the mirror. All kinds of tricks so they can keep billing. And so they're brokering these kids. And a lot, most of them are coming from other states. They don't have family here. The parents don't know. And then they die and the parents don't know what happened. They thought their, their child was going to treatment. They were also putting implants in uh, for opiate withdrawal, which some of them were not even opiate addicts. That was another thing they could bill the insurance for. The drug tests were a goldmine. It was this whole thing. It's getting better. But it took so long for regulations to come into place. You know, there's so much stigma in the treatment world. It's not like other illnesses where it would have been a red flag and dealt with. There's so much stigma. There's so much secrecy. And so that was going on. So that's how I ended up back in nonprofit. Talk about your challenge as a drug counselor. What, to the listener who who is not familiar with addiction, at least in a way that that is uh, kind of deep and nuanced. Talk talk about how you approach it, what works, what doesn't, what are the patterns that you see. You really have to... And I, and I also want this, if you can, to talk to people who are the loved ones of an addict, whether they're the parents or the spouse or the boyfriend or girlfriend. Dr. Drew has told me before, The friends and family are as sick as the person with the chemical dependency. If they don't get their own help, they're contributing to the addict's disease. That makes no sense because as a family member, you want to help, but you can't. By you helping, you're harming. When you're talking about helping in terms of enabling, trying to control what they're... Yes. What the... Yes, the control The illusion that if you just do this, they will stop. Yes, thinking that you have some tor- type of contribution, which you can be supportive, but you have to practice detachment. Talk about that. Detachment is tricky because you don't want to abandon the person, but you need to stay on your side of the street. You have no idea how and when they're going to recover or what their bottom's going to be or if they're even going to have a bottom 
you can't get sick in the process. And what is what do you mean? Hold that thought. What do you mean when you say you can't get sick? Meaning so stressed out with worry and anxiety. Uh, what are they doing? There's a part in one of the support groups that says all your attention is focused on what the alcoholic is doing and not doing and how to get them to stop drinking. So it's consumed you. Now you can't work, can't go to school, you can't pay your bills. So in in essence, the same ripples as the person who's drinking or shooting up. It's degrading their life. That's right. And you tell yourself (laughs) I'm helping. And so often the solution is the exact opposite of what you think it is. Contrary it's to, action, yeah. It's to not answer the door when, you know, they've broken their promise. The boundaries. The boundaries. If I could say two words about codependency for someone who's never even heard that term or what boundaries and detachment. You know, you don't you don't abandon them. There was a big swing toward that for a while, this harshness. I don't like that. I don't do that. Well, talk, talk about, because obviously there's a gray area in there uh, somewhere between boundaries and, you know, abandonment. It's a, it's a situation by situation process. There's no answer. It's It's one day at a time, just like in the support groups for alcoholic and addiction recovery. You literally need a sponsor or somebody from a support group to run things by. You just took the words out of my mouth because I was going to say one of the things that we do, whether we are the the addict or alcoholic or the loved one, is we invest so much of our emotion in an outcome that we can't clearly see what the right thing is to do very often. No, you're in it. You're just as in it. As the bottle and the chemicals, it's just, you're in it, you're getting loaded on adrenaline, you're getting loaded on the crisis and being the hero. Oh, yeah. The Al-Anon salute. <laughs> She's putting her the back of her hand to her forehead, the, the martyr. The Al-Anon handshake. Uh, pointing <laughs> the finger. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My, I think my favorite joke about... Uh, Al-Anon's is what's the last thing to go through in Al-Anon's uh, uh, mind before they die? The other person. Uh, another person's life. Yeah. <laughs> it's dripping codependency. Yeah. That's what it is. And I find that harder to deal with than the addict. Talk about some of the signs that somebody might be codependent. When I'm talking to someone, what what are they saying to me? Are they, are all their, is, is the entire conversation based on what he's doing, she's doing, and she this and she that's like, well, what do you do? And I want her to do this and I want her to do that. And she wants, what do you want to do? Like, bring the focus back to yourself. Bring the, they don't even know they're doing it. Bring the focus back to yourself. And is it common that they are out of touch with what they're actually feeling? Absolutely. Talk. There's talk nothing about that. better than focusing on someone else's problems so you don't have to look at your own. Right. Especially some charming, exciting, interesting alcoholic who's got a daily episode for you to tend to. You don't have to think about what's going on with you. You're always 
thinking about what's going on with them. It's a nice place to hide. Yeah, because on the surface, you can go, well, I'm feeling anger and, uh, you know, abandonment and betrayal. But underneath that is a set of feelings that you're running from, which is loneliness, sadness, grief, self-loathing. What are some of the most common ones that you see when people drill down and get to the emotions that are... Well, most people who are dripping codependents have grown up taking care of a family member. Their mom or dad was an alcoholic, brother, somebody. This is what they've learned. And then law of attraction, they run into someone. They go, oh, I know how to do this. I know what to do with this. So sometimes they haven't dealt with what happened as a child. And they're just doing the same things they were doing as a kid. They haven't looked at themselves. They haven't even had a moment. They're so distracted. It's a good distraction. So it's the typical unresolved grief, abandonment, loneliness, loss. Because depending on who the alcoholic is, they had half a parent maybe. Maybe the alcoholic was great, sober, Jekyll and Hyde. Different scenarios, but most of the time they just really don't know themselves very well. They haven't taken any time to get to know themselves because they're always distracted by being enmeshed with someone else. Mm -hmm. Asking them, who do I need to be in this situation for everybody to be happy, for there to not be yelling, for somebody to not be mad at me, and never even knowing what's my favorite color. What's what's on my bucket list? What's a place that I'd like to go? Yeah, I'm okay if you're okay. Yeah. Uh, That's one one face of the codependent. The other one is self-righteous, smug, and dominating. And they know exactly what they want, and they're going to tell you how to do it. And they're just in charge, but not really, because you can't be in charge of that disease. The disease takes you. You have to turn it over. You have to surrender. You have to sit back. Those are the things you don't want to do when you're seeing a, a loved one hurt. Very difficult to detach and let go. Very difficult. But I've seen a lot of scenarios where a person does detach and does let go, and the person comes back better. I've seen that in my own life with People I've been in love with that were alcoholics. Put up that boundary. Give me some specific examples if you can. Well, the person that I was in love with kept relapsing. So I set a boundary. Okay, from now on, when we meet, we're going to go on a date, and you're going to pay, and you're going to show up, and that's it. Now, I thought this guy is never going to be able to get it together to do this because he could only get about 30 days, if 30 days. Mm -hmm. And I held that boundary, and he showed up. But I had to let go of the fear that I might lose him. Oh, he'll go out with someone else. It'll take care of him like I used to, the fear of loss, all that stuff. I had to put these boundaries, and then I had to trust that the person was going to be okay. I mean, one time, this one was hard. The boundary was, if you're at my house, you cannot drink. So we had an honesty, which was a bit bit strange, but 
He called and said, okay, I drank. I said, well, then you can't come home with me. So he slept outside that night. I was terrified. I slept over to the support group around the corner, and I don't like to share my stuff because clinician, <laughs> physician healed She's herself. rolling her eyes in herself. So I told the story, and all these people came up, and they said, oh, yeah, I went through that. That's happened to me. I've done that before. And he made it through the night. He was fine. I'm sure you've heard the joke. What's the difference between a dog and an alcoholic? When you let a dog back in, it stops whining. (laughs) (laughs) I I never heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's scary. And I mean, you really need the the main thing I could stress is you cannot do it by yourself. You need support, and you have to go to safe places to talk about it with people that understand and a structure. Because the average person will be afraid or judgmental, but mostly afraid. You know, I, I did some pretty dangerous things to help clients and addicts in my past. Talk about those. Well, I mean, I would go into a drug house and I would take people out and take them to detox in my car, not knowing if they were going to have a seizure. I mean, I did these wild things. I don't do this stuff anymore. But for me, I was diving into the inferno. You know, I, I wasn't really able to help my mom with drinking. So now I'm an adult. And I'm a clinician, and I've got books and medicine. I'm going to play with all these tools. Of course, I'm doing all the don'ts for my support group. You know, don't keep checking up on the alcoholic. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't interfere with a crisis if it's in the natural course of events. Well, now you've just taken my job away. (laughs) Who am I without them? I'm a crisis counselor. I get paid to do the don'ts. It was two hats. I had to wear two hats. It was tricky. It was very tricky. Give me an example of the don't interfere if it's a, a, what did you call it, a crisis? Don't interfere in a crisis if it's in the natural course of events. And what does that mean? So if someone is insisting that they're going to take the car, go drink, go use, and don't interfere, like don't run up and attack them to get the keys away from them. There's so many situations where if it's in the natural course of events, you know, don't drive across town and pound on the door and drag them out of the room because you think they might be dying from drinking. If it's in the natural, it's a hard thing to do. Right. It's a very hard, and they're going to call and ask for help. Luckily, the person I was involved with didn't really call and ask for help too much. He tried to do it on his own a lot more. What would an unnatural course of events be? That they're, they're having a heart attack or they're overdosing and, and you need to you know, call 911? Yes. Or, you know, if, it, again, very case-by-case situation, but if someone were to call and say, I want to go to treatment. Can you give me a ride? Okay. But I'm not stopping anywhere. I mean, you got to set it up. I'm not getting cigarettes for you. Um, Yeah. It's 
Is it I have, yeah, I had my guy say to me one time, so, because I was going to meet him somewhere, thinking he was sober when I got there. He was not sober. I said, well, then I got to go. Natural course of events. He's like, well, you're going to go in that store, and you're going to get me some cigarettes. And I said, who do you think you're talking to? I'm not doing that. And if you're going to keep drinking tonight, then I'm going to go home. But I don't want you to go home. Well, that's the boundary. Then you just have to stop talking. And is that why you required him to pay on dates? So that he wasn't just mooching off you for food? Yes. So it was more of a balanced exchange. Gotcha. And, I mean, he had had some dripping codependence in his past. And, unfortunately, that's how he survived. And then he met me and was like, oh, this is a whole different situation. We did a lot of meetings together. We did recovery together. What are some of the most cunning behaviors of the untreated alcoholic addict or even the treated alcoholic addict that the codependence falls for? When they're crying and saying, I really want help and I'm not doing this again. What do you do? Dr. Drew has a fun little scene on a video where he talks about this kid that was just crying and saying, I'm, I'm done, I overdosed this time. I, and Dr. Drew said, you know, you're so full of shit, I don't even know what the truth is. And then, he's, and then he goes, oops, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but it just came out of him naturally. And the kid goes, I know. You got to call him. You got to tell him the truth. That's what they do in the support groups. So when you say detach, meaning, you know, if they if they want to go to rehab, and you said they need a ride, you give them a ride, but you won't stop anywhere in between them. Uh, let's say they're like, I want to get clean now. I need a place to stay for for two nights. What it depends on their history, how many times they've been to treatment your experiences with them, but I've always been very clear with the boundaries. Okay, but this is the situation. You can't drink here. You can't leave at night. You know, you're very, very, in my experience, don't be afraid to communicate your needs to someone going through that. It, they know what they're doing, and they know it's, they just want someone they can actually tell the truth to. I've found that many times. And I'll just walk right up, say, how many days do you have? So what do you do? Just ask the questions. They want to talk about it. They're sick of their own lies. They like it when you call them out. The ones that, if, if you're working in a world where people are healing, support groups, things like that, most of the ones you're going to run into, they want to be called out. It's one of the reasons I could go to my meetings is keeps me right-sized, gives me a chance to think about other people in a healthy way. Right. Um, you say what you mean, don't say it mean. I like that. I've never heard that before. Lois. You say what you mean. You know, don't attack them. Don't punish them. Don't condescend them. You say, very compassionate, but but firm with the boundary. Right. This is what it is. What do you want to do? It's it's so tempting to want to, quote, enlighten them, unquote, and boy, is that its own pitfall of 
grandiosity and disillusionment. I used to play the big book on YouTube while my guy was detoxing. I thought that was going to work. <laughs> He's laying there like, this is the last thing I want to hear right now. I thought that was working. Yeah, and for uh, people who don't know, big book is, is support group literature. For- yes, for alcoholics in recovery. So how are you today? One of the things that you shared in your email, your your son has grown, he moved out and uh empty nester with four cats. <laughs> is there a plan <laughs> for a fifth? Are things that bad? <laughs> I said I said to my son, "Okay, so this is the consolation prize?" <laughs> um, I'm okay. I mean, it's the fallout from the pandemic. I don't think people realize how much it's affected people's mental health. How did it affect yours? I had kind of a different experience because my job actually got busier and prospered because all the people that couldn't go to jail from the pandemic were sent to my agency. So, Oh, because they weren't bringing new people into jails? They could, oh. yeah, they 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 couldn't let they couldn't at least bring, low level offenders. Yes, um, nonviolent offenders were let out on the own recognizance, and then so they were coming to us for treatment to resolve their case. Gotcha. So we got very busy, and we were doing it all on Zoom. We locked our doors in March 2020, like everyone else. Like, how are we going to get people clean? We can't drug test them. We can't see them. You'd be surprised how many people got clean on Zoom. Yeah, I've seen quite a few. I couldn't believe it's it. It's amazing to me. I was shocked because I was trained old school. Yeah, just going to Zoom meetings. So on that level, financially, it was fine. Um, but now it's the fallout with people's mental health. Um, for me, I did lose a lot of people during that time. My father passed away, one of my best friends with 28 years sober, died right in the pandemic. I had another friend about the same amount of time sober, sober committed suicide. Oh, my God. And then my, my guy right before the pandemic. So in 19 and 20, I lost four people very close together. So I kind of threw myself into work. And do you, now that work has, I assume it's slowed down from, from yes. then. What, if any, are the feelings you're processing or looking at or still running from? Well, obviously sadness. Yes, but around this time I found comedy and that became my cure. My father was always yelling at me, humor's the cure, humor. I said, what are you talking about, dad? My dad had depression. Now I know what he means. So. Around the time I discovered podcasts and I discovered stand-up comics and then I understood what my dad was talking about. So I found some way to lighten up because I like to go dark. I can sit there and I'll go dark with you and we'll get to the bottom of it, but I have to have some fun, you know, and I love how comedians talk about mental health. I love it because they're talking about it, they're acknowledging it, they're teaching people about it, and then they're bringing light to it. So 
That was sort of my saving grace through all the grief. That really helped me. Uh, Marin's podcast really helped me because of his public loss and how he talked about it. Mm -hmm. That was around the same time as mine. So, and then I have my own support groups. So, I don't know. I like to run away from it. I like I like to help other people and be distracted. What are what are your unhealthiest coping mechanisms? Well, it's going to sound kind of silly, but I like to binge watch shows. You're a monster. And I like to do these Mandela designs. And it doesn't sound bad, but when you're doing those for hours, you're not talking to your friends. That's my main coping. I isolate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's my, my most unhealthy is isolating. What do you think the in, in isolating, what do you think you're avoiding feeling or thinking? Grief. Loss. And how does isolating keep you from thinking or feeling about that? Because you're in your compulsive behavior, whatever it is. Because I have trouble telling people that I'm in pain. I like to put on a good face, act as if. So if you're asking me to go out for coffee, I'm not going to emotionally throw up on you. Like I kind of shut down and just mm-hmm. go into my own inner world to feel better. I have a lot of trouble asking for help. Are you in pain right now? I'm on an upswing this week. I'm okay. Three weeks ago, it was a different world. Describe what that was like. Sleeping 10 hours a day, can't make it to work on time. Uh, Not picking up the phone when my friends call. It it just garden variety depression. And all its (laughs) faces and camouflages. It's so easy to say, oh, it's stress at work. Oh, it's the deaths. It's like, no, I've been like this my entire life. Give me everything that a perfect person would want. I'm telling you, the chemicals in my brain will take a dip, and I'll still feel like shit. No one gets that. It's all situational to people. I, th- I think the people who listen to this podcast get it. <laughs> I think they're I like, so. yay, one of us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember hearing you say one time that you were joking about someone's depression and you said, but they're so good looking. <laughs> and I completely got that joke. Yeah, you some people, people don't. People say self-fulfilled prophecy. No. Pray harder. The bypass. Yeah. That one gets me angry. Yeah. Well, Kaylee, I'm really glad we we uh, connected. Uh, shout out to Scott Bloom for uh, putting us in contact. Uh, Bloom Productions with each other. Yeah, you're uh, you're a great advocate, and uh, I appreciate you coming on and sharing with Thank us. Thank you so much for having me. Many, many thanks to her and the the work that uh, that she does, and all the people out there in the trenches. We are going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This is, oh, I almost forgot to mention this. Um, the as, as you guys know, um, we occasionally have advertisers 
on the podcast and we go through periods where there aren't many and i'm talking about the ads where we uh where i'm reading uh the copy not the ones where it's injected the ones where it's injected and it's and it somebody else's a la a radio commercial those don't bring in much money at all um the ones that do bring in a little bit more money are the ones where i'm reading the ad um but those are getting harder and harder to come by as more and more podcasts kind of uh take up the the podcast landscape and so one of the things that would help me get more uh advertisers would be if you would fill out a completely anonymous uh survey and the i'll put the link to this in the show notes for this episode and the uh, the link is gum.fm slash mental and um that would greatly help. It's totally anonymous. They don't gather any data on you. And it's just wanting to know, you know, how much money does your household make? Um, you know, what are your spending habits? What do you think about this part of the podcast, that part of the podcast, um, et cetera, et cetera. But it helps to pair the podcast with sponsors. Um, so that would be a great way to help out if you feel like it. And if you don't, Ah, go fuck yourself. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself the Anomaly. He is uh, in his 30s, uh, describes himself as asexual. How would you like people to think of you? I want people to see me as unapproachable. I want them to be intimidated by me, uneasy around me, and know that I'm infinitely smarter than they are. I want them to keep their distance and think of me not as a person they can get close to or invite to things, but as a force to be reckoned with at work who they shouldn't be around too long. That is so interesting because I've never heard somebody, and I suppose this is why you're calling yourself the anomaly, but I've never um, heard somebody Excuse me. I'm trying to scooch, scooch my chair up, um, and I'm struggling. Should I start a GoFundMe for a chair scooching? Uh, how does it feel writing that? I'm so tired. I just want to be left alone. I don't want to be hurt again. I'm not going to survive another betrayal. How would you use a time machine? I'd go back in time and either kill my younger self, one of my parents, both of them, or all three of us. I'm supposed to feel happy about what I've done with my life, but I don't. I feel angry that I had to fight and claw and fuck my way to a stable position in my life while so many people around me just had everything handed to them on a plate. I'm supposed to feel proud of my accomplishments. I'm the youngest department head ever appointed at my university, but I don't. I feel like it's not enough. I don't want to just be admired. I want to be on a pedestal too high for anyone to reach me so they won't try to get close to me. I'm supposed to feel closure about my abusers since they're dead, but I don't. I feel cheated that I don't get to hurt them as badly as they hurt me. I don't want them to be dead because then I can't find a way to make their lives the living hell they deserve for it to be. How does it feel making your real feelings, writing your real feelings out? I can practically hear all I can practically hear the last three therapists I went to in my head telling me, no, you don't want to be left alone. You want to have friends. Everyone does. And hey, you need to forgive your abusers. They're your parents. And my least favorite, the thing that made me quit therapy, surely you had good times with your abusers. Everyone does. And on some level, you love them. 
It feels as if what I say I feel doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how other people think I feel. None of my actual emotions matter. They didn't matter when I was six and my parents were both sexually assaulting me at the same time. They don't now a full 30 years later. Uh, People that say that you need to forgive somebody, I say this all the time on the podcast, but they can uh, go fuck themselves post-haste. I don't even know what post-haste means. Um, Yeah, I'm not a big believer in you should forgive somebody. If you can forgive somebody, hey, that's awesome. But if you can't, that's, that's where you're at. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's what you feel. And we've had a lot of people fill surveys out where there were no positive experiences with the people who raised them and abused them. So you are not alone in that one, brother. And I'm sorry that you've had shitty experiences with, uh, with therapy. There are good therapists out there, though. But there's also a lot of shitty ones. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? I'm deeply abnormal. Everyone has good memories of their abusers. Everyone wants to be around people. Everyone is doing something different than what I'm doing in response to what I've been through. Sometimes I don't think of myself as a person, just a strange entity that exists separate from humans. When I watched the movie Across the Spider-Verse and heard someone referred to as the anomaly, I felt a sense of overwhelming connection. I'm the anomaly. I'm not doing this right. And by this, I mean trauma, life, and being human. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Probably. Oh, brother, sending you some love, man. And I can tell you, when I was processing the trauma uh, that I went through with my mom's shit, I felt so clumsy, awkward, uh just like you're doing this completely wrong and it just took this shame because I was no longer blaming myself for what had happened to me as a child. I was now blaming myself for the way I was processing what was happening to me as a survivor. And so just sending you some love, man. This is from the uh, sexual abuse of a young male by an older female survey. I always wish there was a different name for that, but I... Should we call it Stacy's Mom survey? Uh, This is filled out by Nasrin. She identifies as straight. She's in her 30s says that she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. She was a victim of sexual abuse uh, outside of the uh, events here, and uh, although she wasn't a a victim in in events here, um, she never reported what had uh, happened to her in the events outside the survey. And she writes, I'm... 39 and in a relationship with a 20-year-old. I met him at a support group for survivors of childhood sexual abuse when he was 16, and we became friends pretty quickly. 
but it took about three years before we started dating. He was interested in me early on. I just wasn't sure if it was ethical to be with him. I was also really reluctant to be with him since he was abused by an older woman when he was younger. It's still very difficult for us to be sexual with each other because I'm always worried about coercing him into something. I'd hoped going to college would make him give up interest in me and fall for someone his own age. Instead, he fell in love, got his heart broken by a girl who told him he was trauma dumping on her and making her be his therapist when he told her about how he was abused as a child and ended up crying on my shoulder because he felt unlovable. I have felt unlovable my entire life since what happened. Uh, he he fell asleep, cuddled up with me on the couch. I went to the eye doctor today, and they put those dilation drops in. So uh, I'm, I always struggle a little bit with the, uh, with the reading, but I'm really uh, struggling with it tonight. Um, I felt unlovable my entire life since what happened. He fell asleep, cuddled up with me on the couch. When we woke up in the morning, he kissed me and told me that no matter... No matter what, even if we never dated, he would always love me because I didn't think he was too broken to be around. I kissed him back. We spent a long time just making out and talking. A week later, when he had spring break, he surprised me with a week away in a touristy little town at a bed and breakfast. There we ended up having sex. I have never had sex like this before, where I felt like a person and not just a fuckhole. I've never had consensual sex before at all. Wow. We spent a lot of time talking and working through my shit and his shit, and now we're dating. I know people will probably think it's predatory or sick. I'm afraid maybe it is, but I love him more than I've ever loved anyone in my life. Uh... If something happened, did you ever tell anyone? Did you think it was normal? Do you believe it has had any effect on you? I know it's not normal. I know people probably think I'm a predator. I love him, and he's made me reevaluate how I think about myself, others, trauma, and hope. He's had great effects on my life, but if anyone knew outside of my family and his, they would hate me. Uh, remembering uh, these things, what feelings come up, I love him. I would die for him. I will do anything and everything to make his life better, and he does everything he can to make my life better, too. The phenomenal sex isn't the most important part of it. It's the fact that I feel like a person when I'm with him. Uh, I think it's innocent and natural uh, our sex. I worry that I might have done damage to him by falling in love with him. It keeps me up at night. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to read this, one, I find it interesting and, and uh, compelling, and it, it has stuff that's in that gray area, which I find to be the, the most interesting to talk about and, and to think about. And I don't think of you um, as, as a predator, you know, the, the thing, um, my thought as I was reading this and I could be completely off base, but my thought as I was reading this is that these are two people who have a lot of wounds who are trying to use the other person 
to fill a part of themselves that was left empty by their wounds. And I don't know if that makes sense or not, or if it's even accurate, but that's just the vibe I get from reading this. So the thing that I, that, that is a red flag to me, um, just in terms of is, is this relationship ideal? Is it, uh, sustainable? is that there is that trauma bonding. And trauma bonding is fucking amazing in the beginning. And then you stop feeling filled up by that person. And then you become frustrated with that person because they can't keep rescuing you. And, you know, the the sentences like, um, I would die for him. I would do anything and everything to make his life better. And he does everything he can to make my life better too. It, it sounds enmeshed and um, like there's no where do you end and where does he begin. And that to me is as much, if not more, of a red flag than the age difference. And, you know, he was, it sounds like he was of legal age when the two of you got together. Um, So I don't know, but I love how beautifully complicated that is. And, um, and I wish you both the best. And I mean that sincerely from the bottom of my heart. I don't know who, who I'm talking like, but it's gotta be somebody from a movie in the fifties. And you know the movie ended with that person saying, I love that girl. I love her. She's going to be the mother of my kids. You just look, hey, what? What's the big idea? You know, somewhere in history, somebody right before they got stabbed and died said, hey, what's the big idea? This is from the love survey filled out by Chrissy. Chrissy writes, I love putting away the grocery cart and slamming it perfectly back into the other. That is an awesome one. You know, one of my loves, reading a love that I've never read before. We've been doing these for years and they can get a little, I don't know if I would say repetitive because there's always a little variation, especially with the animals ones, but that is. Oh, that's a, we got to have a word for one that breaks, uh, breaks the mold. Mold breaker. There we go. I just answered my own question. Look at this. I don't need you. I can do this podcast by myself. I love a sunny Sunday at home on the couch, not having any more chores left to do. I love the way my mom's dog looks into my eyes with love while I pet her on her tummy. Speaking of that, I just posted a, uh, video to patreon of gracie and she does this every and and i've meant to record this a hundred times but whenever we wake up from a nap i go into the bathroom brush my teeth straighten my hair put in the curlers steam it dye it get rid of the perm do the perm again Call a friend, ask him if I should have gotten rid of the perm or if I should have kept it. No, but uh, I, I come out of the, the bathroom 
And she is always not only laying on her back, but she is positioned so that she is looking at me upside down, like eyes contacting me before I even walk through the door, like, like just waiting to lure me in with her loving gaze. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey, and this is filled out by Hank. Uh, and in parentheses, same, ha- same Hank as from the other surveys with the incestuous mom and anxiety issues. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? You're a bad person if you think of what your mom did as abuse. She loved you. She supported you. She was the only person there for you when no one else was. And when your dad thought you were too wicked and evil to be saved, she taught you no one is beyond Allah's love. You're a bad person if you think what she did doesn't count as abuse. You're excusing and enabling incest and pedophilia, and you're a monster. You're bad if you don't know how to feel. You're old enough. You should have known what you feel and think, and you're insane and pathetic for not knowing. You're too messed up for a relationship. You're not messed up enough to deserve therapy when people have had much worse things happen. And let's be real, women who are victims of incest deserve therapy more than you. You're a man. Men are supposed to be stronger than this, and you weren't assaulted and penetrated like girls are. You were given hand jobs and cuddles by someone you willingly got into bed with. How fucking dare you compare your pain to theirs? How self-centered, self-important, and egotistical you are. The only reason Allah loves you is because he has to, because that's how mercy works, not because you deserve to be loved. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Hank. That That is, I think anybody who has ever experienced uh, a sexual violation recognizes that that is what the human brain does so often with trauma, is it just finds a way to punish you and gaslight you and keep you guessing and unsure and filled with doubt and self-recrimination and self-hatred. And I'm so sorry you're experiencing that, Hank. Sending you sending you some love, man. Oh, I just dimmed the lights and maybe I'm expecting uh, somebody to... <laughs> Can't, I can't think of something that could be delivered that's romantic. I don't know. I was going to say like a, a singing telegram. When was the last time somebody received a singing telegram? 900 years ago? This is from the Love Survey filled out by Brett Bobbs. And uh, they write, I love catching yourself in the moment, either being present with where you are and how your life is, or waking up early Catching the sunrise from outside your window. Finally being able to set boundaries with my family. My mom is codependent and my dad is an alcoholic. Being proud of being sober from alcohol for six years and having no desire to go back even at my lowest points. Kudos to you. Volunteering at the shelter and seeing a new cat in the room. 
I take care of. I get to greet them and find out their personality. Also knowing that a cat is getting adopted from my room makes me so happy, and I get to say goodbye before they go into their forever homes. The first cold day of the year, when you need to go back inside to get a jacket after sweating for six months, moving halfway across the country to get away from my parents, and finally finding friends I can call my family after six years of being depressed. And this one, I have to assume uh, they're talking about Halloween, uh, when it's finally spooky season and you are surrounded by death and blood and ghosts, but with a happy mood behind it instead of the horrors of reality. Thank you for those. This is from the first day in therapy survey, and this is filled out. This was this uh, survey was, I did not create this survey. This was created a long time ago by a listener who was uh, putting herself through um, getting her license to be a therapist. And for one of her projects, she said, could I use your podcast to ask people about their therapy experiences? And so uh, people are still taking it. How many people have taken this one? This is number... 1,400, 1,400 people have taken this survey. Uh, This is filled out by, um, they don't ask for the names or uh, genders with this one, but this person's between uh, 18 and 25. Uh, What brought you to therapy? Uh, Childhood trauma? Describe any fears you had associated with starting therapy. I was scared to meet a new person and confide in them. I was scared that I wouldn't be understood and that they wouldn't be able to help me. Did any of your fears come true? Both of them kind of came true. My first therapist just let me talk and that was it. I didn't feel understood or seen. She didn't give me any tools to work with. She just let me talk and figure it out on my own. Uh, My third therapist was amazing. I've been with her for a little over three years. We slowly built a safe space together. For me, body-focused work was amazing in combination with schema therapy. Is it schema or schema? I think it's schema. I know it's not scummy because I got to tell you, if there was an unpopular therapy, scummy therapy is at the top of the list. Figuring out what my body was telling me has been a wonderful tool and just being able to vent and leave my shit somewhere. She has a very holistic approach. It doesn't feel clinical. For me, that feels amazing. There's a nice balance of me figuring things out myself and her guiding me. I love how she makes me feel seen and how she makes me feel like a person who knows a lot about themselves. I've been made to feel like a very sick person at times, a person who will never get better and will always feel bad, who will always stay in need of therapy. My therapist saw my strengths and built upon them with me. I was never made to feel small and inferior, just two people connecting and learning from each other. Uh, Do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? Um... If yes, describe how you came to feel that way. If not, describe why that is, what changes you could make, or some things you think your therapist could do to make you feel, help you feel safer. I was very depressed, anxious, and destructive. My current therapist was a stable and safe-ish place to go to every week. I never felt safe. Slowly, over time, 
She showed me that I could trust her, that she listened to me, and that I could tell her whatever. We found a way to connect with each other, even when I was very dissociated. Slowly over the years, I was able to relax more and more. Slowly, I stopped needing to survive. She was there for all of the lows, steady and honest. She made me feel like she trusted me too, which made me open up even more. If something she did was uncomfortable or once or twice even scary for me, we were able to talk about it and she would make sure that it never happened again. Her steady, safe space gave me the freedom to slowly ground myself and love myself more and more. I love it. I love it. And, you know, they say that uh, a good therapeutic relationship can be kind of a template for uh, our relationships outside of therapy. And I have found that to be to be very much uh, true. Um, you know, for for many of us, it can be the first place where we get up the balls to say, I don't like the way you said that to me, or I don't like that you use these words, or, you know, even if we're making it up in our mind, just addressing that gives us the experience of working through something without either running or exploding. This is from the uh, babysitter survey, and then you see the, the, the theme here. Um, this is filled out by Remy and, uh, this is so dark. I should have saved this one for, I'm just going to read it. Uh, my babysitter drugged me and had her boyfriend rape me while she watched and masturbated. I was eight. My parents didn't believe me. I was convinced it happened because I was a bad person and deserved it. I still do sometimes. I don't think I'm worthy of love and I don't feel safe being with anyone. So I try to avoid romance and relationships entirely. Uh, remembering these things, what feelings come up? Fear, overwhelming anxiety, the desire to rip my own hair out, and the relief that I've isolated myself so much it can never happen again. Do you feel any damage was done? It destroyed my capacity to trust, and I don't think of love as a real possibility for myself. Have you been the victim of any sexual abuse outside of the events described here? Oh, man. I blew a teacher in high school to get my math grade up to passing. I just, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say. That's so horrifying. I'm so sorry that all of those things, that those things happen to you. Um, and on top of it, your parents not believing you. I mean, that, fuck, dude. I feel like there's something I should be saying and I don't know what it is because I feel like it feels incomplete 
and I don't know what it is that I that I want to say other than I'm sending you some love, brother. And then finally, this is from the Loves uh, survey. And this is filled out by Spiral. And uh, Spiral writes, I love situations where I can see the wind, clouds scudding along and in the sky, or where sunlight gets reflected off of water's wavelets, the long grass on a hillside bending and dancing in the afternoon, and fallen snow getting stirred up by the wind. I love that parts of nature conspire to show me what I cannot see, but can feel what I know is there. It gives me faith that there are other ways of encountering, of knowing the world around me. That's beautiful. Very well said. Very poetic. I wonder if you wrote it with one of those big fancy fountain pens. God, that last survey just, uh, I don't know what that, it, it's, uh, the feeling of reading that is just sitting. Are you guys feeling that? I mean, a lot, maybe it was just a, that there was kind of a, a theme through the, the heavy surveys of this, this podcast, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just, uh, I don't know. Just if you're out there and you're, and you're, and you relate to any of the surveys, maybe it's because there was just so much heaviness and pain and, and so many of the surveys tonight. Um, if you're, if you're out there and you're anybody who heard their survey read or relates to the surveys that were read, um, just hang in there. Fuck. I don't know what to say. I'll tell you what to say. Gadzooks, look at that game. Those gams ain't gams. don't even know what that means and my and now my voice hurts if you're out there and you're feeling stuck never forget you are not alone and thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know weird ways bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways bizarrely